The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone and Happy New Year. So, at the beginning of the new year, I often do a review of practice, and it just so happens as we're beginning this new book by Joseph Goldstein, some of you have seen this, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. Some of you are reading along, don't feel like you need to get a copy, but it's a wonderful book. It's also a a tremendous collection of Dharma talks that Joseph gave over, I think, three years' time at IMS, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and you can get those talks at dharmaseed.org and uh, just look under Joseph Goldstein. And it's his talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, this discourse on the four foundations or the four ways of establishing mindfulness. And he's just following this very well-known discourse of the Buddha where the Buddha is talking about mindfulness in a very systematic way. And he sets it up as this is the way put aside sorrow and lamentation, to put aside human suffering. It's a pretty provocative thing for somebody to say. And it's just interesting to see how we feel about that. You know, it's interesting how we tend to be attached or identified with our suffering and uh, can feel quite challenged when somebody suggests that it's possible to be a human being without suffering. Because then it makes us feel stupid. <laughs> like, what am I doing suffering if I don't have to? But instead of that reaction, we could just become interested. Is there a way to put aside the experience of mental stress? Is it possible to be a human being with a life, with twists and turns, and anger and desire and lust and confusion and mosquitoes and... 30 below weather and, you know, everything that we experience in life, is it possible to be awake and open to all that without the heart or mind stressing, getting tight in the experience of being a human being with the circumstances or the conditions that we face? And what's amazing is how reflexively we accept that getting tight is not only inevitable, but it, even worse, we think it's functional to get tight, to get upset. Like to get re- like really tied up with greed or wanting something to happen in our life, as if that is functional in the sense of making it more likely for that thing we lust or want to happen. It doesn't. Getting tight about it doesn't make it more probable that it's going to happen for us or getting tight about what we fear, don't want to happen, that doesn't actually change the probabilities of whether global warming is going to happen or not, or this person's going to fall in love with us or not, or we're going to get that job or not. Getting tight only leads to being tight. So the Buddha, and of course many others over the years have said that there is a way to go beyond, to put aside this deep, pervasive habit of getting tight, becoming stressed. And then 
when we are stressed, when we are tight, then we get confused by the tightness. And so it leads us to act in ways that are not so skillful, which causes more and more problems, not only for ourselves, but then for other people around us. And this is the world that we live in, where our own tendency to get tight about things causes us to be less and less functional and skillful, causing us to create causes for more stress, more dysfunction, less skillfulness. So the Buddha sets up this talk saying, this is the way. And then if human beings are really going to go beyond these tendencies of stress, it's going to require becoming more and more mindfully aware of the way it is. So this is also provocative. Not not so much that this is the way, but in a way the Buddha is saying this is the only way. It doesn't mean there aren't, you know, that all the other spiritual practices are not good. But it might mean that the ones that are good are, in one way or another, talking about mindfulness, even though they may not use that word. Another way to think about this is that the basic problem we have as human beings isn't that we're inherently evil, as we sometimes think. You know, we like, not so much that, well, maybe you think that about yourself, but sometimes, at least every once in a long while, we think that about another person, like they're evil, they're bad. But it isn't so much that, it's really a matter of the mind not seeing clearly and then acting based on not seeing things clearly. And then certain actions seem reasonable when, in fact, if the mind were seen clearly, the mind would know, that's not a reasonable thing, that's not helpful, that's just going to make things worse. We do this as a nation, we do this as individuals, as communities. So the basic problem is ignorance in the sense of not seeing things as they are or misperceiving. Our mind is constantly being colored by not just emotions, but the mind's identification with emotional feeling, the pain, the pleasure that we experience. And the mind's identification with it distorts our ability to see clearly. It's amazing when we come across something pleasant, it's amazing how quickly the mind gets confused. You know, you see something that somebody else has at work or at the store that for whatever reason really appeals to you. And it's hard for the mind not to start constructing scenarios where you're going to get that. I could borrow money, I could just take his thing, (laughs) or whatever. It affects us. So we're vulnerable, you know, as long as we're in our ordinary state of mind, a mind that is affected by pain and pleasure, gets identified, takes it personally, thinks about, proliferates around pleasant and unpleasant experiences, 
then we're vulnerable for vulnerable to acting in ways that cause harm for ourselves and others. So in this discourse, the Buddha talks about mindfulness as this wise, steady balance of mind. This is what mindfulness allows. We can call that samadhi, this wise, balanced steadiness of mind. And samadhi, or this balance of mind, is the proximate cause for seeing things as they are. So if we're going to correct the basic problem that we humans have, which is misperceiving or not seeing clearly, then we need, whether you call it samadhi, of course, doesn't matter, but we need to cultivate, we need to train the mind to be steady, wise, and balanced. Really, it's the mind blossoming into its... uh, you know, it's, you could say, I think it's appropriate to say it's natural state when the mind is free of agitation or free of distortions. We actually, surprisingly maybe, we bump into this state from time to time, but mostly we're not aware of when the mind comes into balance. Or we attribute <clears throat> the nice, uh, feeling of that balance to the particular circumstances that we're in. You might be taking a nice walk and all the conditions are just right. Your body's you know, far enough into the walk that your body is loosened up, <coughs> but not too far into the walk that you've gotten stiff yet and are you know, not cold or not hot and it's pleasant, the surroundings are pleasant, the body feels good. And just maybe because of the absence of things disturbing that are there to disturb the mind, the mind is not disturbed. And because maybe the walk is engaging enough, the scenery is engaging enough, the mind isn't generating content that is disturbing, like worrying about what I said yesterday, or thinking about what I need to do tomorrow, or whatever else the mind might be doing. So in that state of, you know, like a perfect way where the mind is relatively not disturbed, undisturbed by what's coming and going, then the mind will naturally realize some kind of balance. Remember, samadhi is just the mind that's not being disturbed. So instead of like something we have to create, it's more about finding a way to be present, to be in this moment, without being disturbed by it. And there we have a couple tactics, you know, with mindfulness. We can direct mindfulness, basically asking the mind to pay attention to something that's not disturbing, like the breath, right? That's one of our tactics, our meditation instructions. Honey, notice the breath coming in. Notice the breath going out. Notice the next breath coming in. Notice the next breath going out. And because for most people, not everyone, that's a pretty neutral experience, then to the degree that we give ourselves to the knowing of the breath coming in and then breath going out, the mind remains, relatively speaking, undisturbed until it begins to have doubts. Like, ooh, is this really going somewhere? Am I any good at this? Is that person better than me? Am I the best one in the room? 
But we can always go back to knowing the next breath coming in and the next breath going out. So one way that we cultivate the samadhi is we direct the attention to activity. The same thing if you're walking in that nice uh, experience that I described about walking someplace pleasant like the woods or whatever it might be for you on the beach. And, uh, you know, you can be in the nicest place, but you can let your mind wander to certain places and it will be quite disturbing. Right when I was starting my meditation practice in the early 80s, I did a lot of backpacking. And uh, I was so amazed how I could be in the most amazing places. Like one time in particular, uh, in the high Sierras, between California and Nevada, maybe some of you have backpacked in Kings Canyon in that area. It's quite beautiful on the North Palisade. And it's just extraordinary landscape. And my mind was completely not there. It's completely absorbed in relationship stuff that was, you know, thousands of miles away. Had nothing to do with what was going on, not only that day, but you know, any time in the last month. But that's where the mind was. And it was quite agitated. So, to protect the mind, like in directing the mind, we have to really do that with some ardency. So directing the mind, we, well, any kind of practice of mindfulness requires this ardency, this real strength of the heart that wants to care for itself, wants to take care of itself. Because we know that the mind tends to go back to things that it doesn't need to go back to or to think about things it doesn't need to think about. I'm not saying that we never need to plan or consider certain things. But it's interesting how we seem to gravitate towards personal drama and uh, are suspicious when things are calm, Instead, it's like almost this belief that we don't deserve. The mind doesn't deserve to settle down. The world's too crazy. How can it settle down? We get this a lot, actually, in, in discussions after talks. You know, people will bring up, not so much in a blatant way, but, but just to be provocative, it's, it's sort of the question, like, in this crazy world, is it appropriate for the mind to be calm? You know, given the inequities, given the ways that people are being oppressed, given what we've done to the environment, given these unsolved problems, given that I don't have money for retirement, given that, and it seems like, no, given all of that, I should be tight. My mind should be agitated. I should be, you know, worrying about this for 10 seconds, and then this other thing, and jumping around like that. Even though, if we just looked at it with some perspective, we'd realize it's actually not helping. We're not, it's not like we're solving problems by the mind spinning in these ways. So there's a real value to uh, taking care of the mind this way, for the mind to realize its natural state of not being disturbed. And in Buddhism, in the teachings of the Buddha, this is strongly, strongly emphasized. Not as some escape from the world, but as a developing the presence of mind, 
to be able to be right in the middle of the world that we actually inhabit without being confused by it, without being pushed around by it, so that we can actually respond in a more functional, skillful way. So one way is learning to direct the mind to objects of experience that are non-disturbing, like the experience of sitting. Now, initially our body hurts when we sit, and then, if you're lucky, you get some time where the body doesn't hurt so much, and then, if you're doing your job and sitting long enough, the body starts to hurt again. So, but generally, somewhere in there, just the experience of sitting is neutral enough for most people, not necessarily for a long time, but long enough that we can use the experience of sitting or some of the sensations of sitting, or more specifically, the experience of the breath, or for some people, the experience of hearing, especially in a relatively peaceful place like this meditation hall, or maybe you have a room at your house or home that's relatively quiet. The phone can be shut off. Pets can be kept outside. Children know what you're doing or will leave you alone. Then you can just use hearing. Just open to the experience of hearing as a neutral experience. And you, the mind, the practice, in a sense, takes that up to the exclusion of all other mental and physical experiences that the mind could be paying attention to, it chooses to pay attention to hearing, or to the sensations of sitting, or to the sensations of the breath in the body. So we sometimes hear this word seclusion, so we're secluding the mind from what's agitating. This is what we do at night when we need a good night's sleep. We seclude ourselves from what's agitating. We don't, hopefully, keep the news running at night, you know, or, you know, have other things that agitate the mind. It's nice to be able to go, when you're time to sleep, it's nice to be able to go someplace that's not so cluttered, doesn't have too many things around it that agitate the mind, but instead have things that calm the mind. That's why this building, you know, as best we could with a 1950s diner, which this building used to be, you know, we converted it, we renovated it, so that for most of us, it has a calming effect on the mind when you walk in. Now, the other way that we can train the mind without directing the attention is, is a stronger emphasis on wisdom. So instead of directing the attention to what is non-agitating, like the breath moving in the body, that simple experience of touching as the air goes through the nostrils, touching as the air goes out of the nostrils. Some people feel the breath here in the belly, the simple experience of rising, that movement of the abdomen rising, the movement of the abdomen falling. We can do a more, what we call, open attention practice. And what we're noticing is just whatever is predominant in that moment. It may be the sensations of the breath, the belly expanding and contracting. And then it might be noticing that thinking is being known, hearing is being known, aching in the knee is being known, loud shouting is being known. So it could be anything that catches the mind's attention, and then it's just simply something being known with a strong dose of wisdom. It's just this being known. So in a way, in a very powerful way, 
It sounds so simple, but it's extraordinarily powerful when the mind understands that any experience of the mind or body, internal experience or external experience, is just something being known. So that's a powerful deconstruction. Like the person who came in and yelled, that experience, like we could, I'm sure a lot of us did, you know, get wrapped up to some degree, reacted, had opinions, got identified with the opinions, thought we shouldn't be having opinions, got identified with the thought that we shouldn't be having opinions, and on and on like that, you know, just different waves, reverberations of that whole experience, perhaps during the sit. But from time to time, hopefully, that wisdom would reassert itself and would understand, the mind would understand, oh, that's just a thought, just a memory being known. See how simple that is. Like, let's take something else that's very provocative. We're all going to die. So, just bring to mind that fact, right? We're all going to die. And we could launch into all kinds of trips about that. Got to write my will, you know. I don't want to die. Got to figure out where they are with what is it called cryogenics or something like that. <laughs> or the mind could radically deconstruct. Well, that's just a thought being known. I'm going to die. It's just a thought being known. It's not saying that we're for or against the thought. We're not evaluating the thought. We're just recognizing that it is a thought being known. Right now, phenomenologically speaking, it's just a thought being known. I'm going to die. It's just a thought being known. Nobody likes me. It's just a thought being known. And if there's an emotional feeling associated with that thought, that emotional feeling is just sensation being known. So with open attention practice, instead of directing the attention to experiences that tend not to agitate the mind, so that the mind can connect with those experiences without being disturbed, without being agitated, so it experiences a calming due to non-agitation, the mind is not doing that work of directing the attention, which is work, right? It takes work, it takes intention. You have to intend the attention to go to the breath over and over again because it's not the habit of the mind to just know the breath. The habit of the mind is to do whatever it wants to do, to know this, to think about that. So it's a lot of work to direct the attention and that work is slightly stressful. Even when we train the mind to do it in a very relaxed way, it's still a little bit stressful to have an exclusive object of attention. It's an excellent training. I recommend it. So I'm not saying you shouldn't do this training. You should do this training and you should also understand the direction of the practice, which is to move toward a more open attention style, where you're not directing the attention, but instead you're using wisdom, which deconstructs the personal meaning we tend to give to experiences that are being known, and remembers instead, with wisdom, it's just this being known. It's just a mind experience, a thought being known. It's just a physical experience, a sound, a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch being known. 
It's never anything other than these six things being known. Some mental activity or thought being known, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a sight being known. So it's always one of these six things being known. And here the emphasis is on being known. So we have these two basic practices. All the instructions you hear will fall into somewhere along the spectrum of being asked to direct your attention to something like loving-kindness phrases, the actual feeling of loving-kindness, the experience of the breath moving in the body, the experience of the body sensations generally, hearing, to opening to whatever the mind is already knowing, whatever is predominant. By being predominant means all we're saying is that's what the attention is naturally going to and knowing. So we're just acknowledging what the attention is already knowing, that it is being known. And it's a moment-to-moment concentration. So you don't, does it really matter that the mind is knowing different objects each in each moment? What matters is, is the mind aware that that's an object being known? Now it's this object being known, this experience is being known, that sound is being heard, that sight is being seen, those sensations are being felt, thinking is being known, moment by moment by moment like that. When we're able to develop this uh, balance, this wise, steady balance, then what begins to happen, this inevitable thing begins to happen. The Buddha sometimes used the image of how the water in the Ganges River inevitably, unavoidably flows to the ocean, that when conditions, the proper qualities of mind are set in motion, then the mind moves in the direction of insight. It sees what it hasn't seen before. Because the causes for not seeing are removed. Right? The causes for not seeing clearly are these distortions, these reactive patterns that keep the mind disturbed. A nice image is like a, a clear pool of water and all the different ways that that surface of the water can get disturbed. And the same thing with the mind. There are so many different ways the surface of the mind can be disturbed. And then that disturbance prevents the mind from seeing things as they are. The mind is still seeing things, but what it's seeing is its own disturbance more than what is actually here and now. It just can't see what's here and now because its disturbance, its agitation, is more apparent. It's just like when we get really angry, it's really hard to see clearly how we should respond. Because when we look at the problem, what gets the attention is our anger. We're really angry. So how can we really see like the way to handle the situation? It's not really possible. We need to be, the mind needs to be unconfused by the anger. That's different than not being angry or not having anger. The mind, the heart might be disturbed, but the mind is aware of the disturbance. It's not personalizing the disturbance. And so then, in a sense, is it still a disturbance? And so this is that wisdom part that we need if we're going to do this open attention, where we can, in any moment, with any experience, 
just deconstructed to its elemental nature. This is just something being known. And this is a phrase that can be used in your practice. It's actually, for a lot of us, a very useful mantra, almost, where if you don't, if you can't clearly identify with a word what's being known, you can just use the word this. This is being known. If you're, if the mind is clearly aware of what's being known, then name it. You know, hearing is being known. Worrying is being known. It's just this being known. This mind or body experience being known. So the Buddha recommends that we use this wise, steady balance to contemplate the body and the mind. And he breaks the mind down. There are four foundations of mindfulness. So there's knowing the body or contemplating the body with this wise, balanced, steady attention. And then he breaks the mind down into three areas just to um, point like what is useful to contemplate. We should contemplate the experience of feeling, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of our experience in the moment. We should contemplate the qualities of the mind. Do we have, is the mind expansive or tight, angry or happy? And we should contemplate the mind in terms of the maps that the Buddha described, like the different ways the mind gets hindered, or the different wholesome qualities of mind, like joy, like interest, like investigation, and tranquility, and stillness, and equanimity. To use these particular maps to look at the mind. So we use, we sort of, in a sense, conceptually hold up the map and use it to look at the mind. Like, in terms of this map, what does this mind in this moment look like? Now, in terms of the map of the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering. There's a cause for it. The cause can be released. Suffering can be put down. And this is how that's developed. So we could, that's one of the maps. The Buddha suggests we practice being mindful of the mind with a map. That's the fourth foundation. So we are mindful, contemplating the body, contemplating the experience of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality, contemplate the different qualities of mind. You could think of it in terms of the shape or texture of the mind. And it's different. You know, sometimes we have kind of a depressed affect in the mind. Sometimes the mind is quite buoyant and light, right? So there are different, like, weather systems in the mind. That's what that third category is. And the fourth is just using the particular teachings or maps that the Buddha laid out to better know the mind, to better see how the mind operates, how it ends up in very tight, unfree states, and how it can end up in very light and free, liberated states. And then, as the Buddha describes being mindful in these ways, he has a passage that he repeats over and over again. In fact, I think it's repeated 13 times in this discourse. You know, it's probably a 15-page, at the most, discourse, maybe 10 pages. And so I want to read that. I'll read the version that Joseph has in the book. And then I'll come back to this next week and go through it 
part by part, but I'll, I'll read it, say a few words, and then open it up for discussion. So, for example, if he gives instructions about being mindful of the body, and he gives many different ways to be mindful of the body, including mindfulness of the breath is one way to be mindful of the body, being aware of all your movements through the day, when you're reaching, knowing that you're reaching, when you're stepping, knowing that you're stepping, when you're lying down, knowing that experience. So that after each time he gives a meditation instruction, then he repeats this paragraph. He says, in this way, in regard to the body, or if he's talking about the feeling, in regards to feeling, or if he's talking about the mind, in regards to the mind, or in regards to these maps of the mind, one abides contemplating the body, I'll just use the word body now, abides contemplating the body internally, or abides contemplating the body externally, or abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of the arising of the body and the nature of the passing away, or the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindful that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world, anything in our experience. So what the Buddha is saying for all these different meditation instructions he gives in this talk, and it's really the whole array, this discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, really is a complete teaching. It's something that somebody could study, or even one part of it, and that would be enough to deliver all the natural results to developing mindfulness and freedom of the mind that comes from it. So, the path basically is, as we discovered how to bring the mind into balance, so it's steady and it's wise, it's not being confused by what's being known, it's seen clearly, then what we're doing to sort of allow that wise, balanced attention to see clearly, we're making sure that nothing is left out, that everything is included, and that's what he means by internally and externally, and both internally and externally. It's like we could be sitting here and somebody, you know, and being with the breath going in and being with the breath going out, and somebody could be, you know, opening up a a cloth lozenge, you know, one of the ones with the plastic wrapper. And, uh, you know, it could seem like that sound is somehow invading our practice. That what I'm interested, what I'm contemplating is this internal experience of the breath. But there's this external experience. But when we're contemplating the body or the mind or feeling, we're including internal and external. Another way to think about this, this comes from uh, uh, an American Buddhist monk, Anjan Tanisaro, where he says that internally and externally is better translated as directly and indirectly. So we're contemplating the body directly and indirectly and both directly and indirectly. So that as we're aware of the body, we're aware of all the different indirect effects of the body. 
So, like, if there's a lot of pain and I'm aware of that pain, you know, throbbing, burning, twisting, stinging, or whatever, in the body, aware of those sensations in a very direct, immediate way, but I can also be aware indirectly how those sensations are related to the feeling of unpleasantness or the, to the mind getting tight or to the hindrances that are arising. You know, this is one of the maps the Buddha offers us to contemplate our experience with. So that's the indirect, like how are those sensations that I'm knowing of throbbing, burning, how that relates to what's going on in the mind. That's the indirect experience. But in any case, the real point of this instruction is we need to use this balanced, wise, steady attention to become more and more inclusive so that what is being contemplated is truly this. Like when you look right now at your present moment experience, this is how it is, right? Now, the mind actually has to work hard to divide it up. This lived experience that each of us are having right now isn't by its nature this and that. It's this. And so, this instruction is this, you know, to be mindful, to contemplate our experience internally, externally, both internally and externally, is to, to be all-inclusive. Mindfulness is all-inclusive. Or as Ajahn Sumedho says, it's the one point that includes everything. It isn't that, that's, it makes intuitive sense that the present moment, this, I have to use my conceptual mind to break it apart. But if I just let the conceptual mind sort of retreat into the background a little bit, then this is just this. There's a wholeness to it, a completeness to it. So that's that first part of that paragraph that gets repeated 13 times. It's probably important if it got repeated 13 times in this talk that we should be mindful internally, contemplating our experience internally, externally, both internally, externally. And then if we do that, if we have that completeness of awareness with our experience that we're contemplating, then we can begin to contemplate the arising and passing away of it. So this really is another blow to the habit of conceptualizing our experience because it's only the concept that gives the appearance of stability to experiences. You know, if I look at Erica sitting there, the concept of Erica gives some stability to the experience of seeing. Or the concept of being at Common Ground Meditation Center can create a sense of stability to this experience. But when we allow the concepts to fall to the sides, to be along in the periphery, and more just in the direct experiencing of this, we begin to notice that this hardly lasts before it's the next thing. That that we're living fundamentally in a process, not in a thingness. There isn't a this as a noun with any solidity. It's an unfolding process. 
And no matter what aspect of our experience we contemplate, if mindfulness is truly in balance, then what will begin to arise in our field of experience, the field of awareness, isn't so much the object that's being known, but that knowing itself is an unfolding process. That there's a very distinct, ephemeral, insubstantial quality to any experience, whether we're knowing pain in the knee, or a memory, or a sound. It doesn't matter what the particular object is. What becomes more and more apparent to the mind, the mind that knows, is the changing nature, the ephemeral, insubstantial, changing nature of experience. And it's a real shift. And the only thing preventing this shift from arising is the dominance conceptualizing has in the mind. The mind is quite addicted, fixed on the concepts that are constantly being generated, and it creates a sense of real, a very thin but very real sense of stability. And you may not like this, but we're learning to let go of that false sense of stability and it's a, it's often a challenging transition to begin to relax and trust the more real, insubstantial, changing, processed nature of experience. So that's why the Buddha says next, you know, the next instruction is, one abides contemplating the nature of arising, the nature of passing away, or the nature of both arising and passing away and whatever experience we're contemplating in that moment. That's actually what we're contemplating. So once we have that balance, once we're including everything, there's a sense of this, then instead of the particulars of this, like, oh, this is a sound being known, or this is a sensation of the breath coming in being known, the mind is actually contemplating that this experience is in the process of changing. It isn't even a thing. It's Before it becomes a thing, it's already becoming another thing, and then another thing, and another thing. Like, how could we get to, in my case, being 55 years old, there was a constant change. There wasn't like, okay, now I'm 55 for 365 and or a little bit less days. I'm 55, and then... On April 11, I shift, and then I'm 56. It's not like that, right? This is what science tells us. There's this never-ending process of change. This is true with our mind, like, I'm depressed. No, we're either, you know, the mind is either moving in the direction of, like, these certain qualities becoming stronger and stronger in the mind, or it's unfolding in a way where these certain qualities are getting weaker and weaker in the mind. The mind isn't a set thing, ever. It's always changing, becoming something else. But the ideas we have, the concepts we have, the story we tell ourselves, makes it seem like things are fixed. But as we cultivate mindfulness, that begins to break down. And then we resist that, because we didn't realize it, but we're quite dependent on the meaning we've been giving things. Or we should say, I should say, we're dependent on the the thin stability our concepts 
the meaning, the thinness of the meaning. It, it's, it is meaning, but it's very thin, and it requires a lot of work to keep patched up. But we're still dependent on it, attached to it, identified with it. So this is why the practice is challenging. So the Buddha gives that instruction. First we contemplate in a way that makes the awareness of our experience all-inclusive, internal, external, everything's included. It's just this being known, all-inclusive. And then in that balanced, inclusive attention, we're noticing the coming and going. We're noticing the changing nature of it. And then the last instruction, and I'll talk more about this next week, is really teasing out tension. So the Buddha says, Mindfulness that there is a body, right, or that this is being known, whatever this is, is being known, is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge or bare attention and continuous mindfulness. How much effort, how much personal effort is required to be aware in that simple way? Not much. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This He's really pointing to an effortlessness that can arise in meditation and mindfulness practice where we realize that we can tease out any sense of personal doing, like I'm being mindful. So first we he instructs us to contemplate in a way that's all-inclusive, then to highlight the changing nature of whatever it is we're knowing in that moment. Notice that it's changing. It's not important that there's pain being known, but the pain is changing. It's a dynamic process. Or our thought is being known. No, the thought is changing. Thoughts are coming and going. And then the next is to start stripping away any personal doing until the mind realizes an effortless knowing, like knowing will happen without somebody trying to know. So when I do that, you don't need to say to yourself, I should hear that clap. We don't, it doesn't need to be a personal doing for that clap to be heard. It just is a natural, the mind will naturally know it. Now we have, that's not easy to strip away, to abandon the sense of doing in practice, because initially we need a real strong sense of being mindful, like, bringing the attention back to the breath, and then it wanders away, and bringing it back. We can do this 300 times in a sit easily, and it's not a bad sit to come back to the breath, to come back to the breath, to come back to the present moment. So initially there is a very strong sense of I'm practicing, I'm bringing my attention back to the present moment. But then we have to tease that out. So this is a, this phrase gets repeated because it really describes the whole trajectory of practice. And we have about seven minutes before we need to end. There's time for questions or you might have some comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the group that seem relevant. Yeah, Anne. Yeah, I have a question about the open-ended practice. I find it tricky for me. Open awareness? Yeah, the open awareness. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think is a pitfall in is the use of the word language. Like when I am aware of just my body or just my breathing, I can pretty much go to a sensation without words. But when I have, when I try to practice open-ended, 
I end up failing in coming back to my body because I, I say knowing, 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 seeing, knowing, and I, I, I fall into that pitfall. So I'm wondering, you know, to trick the eye, or I guess I'd be down like this, to be open-ended without words. I don't know, Mark. I can't do it. Yeah. Well, in some ways it's harder to do open attention practice because very quickly the mind gets identified with whatever is predominant and it's thinking, but because it doesn't have an anchor, it doesn't realize it's not practicing. You know, it thinks that the mind may think it's practicing because I'm aware, but it's actually identified and caught up in some activity, you know, that feels appropriate. And it isn't later until we realize, oh, I spent that whole time planning, or I spent the whole time thinking about meditating, but not actually meditating. So you mentioned that one trick is, one technique is, to <coughs> ask the mind to name what it is that it's knowing. Because that naming process or labeling process, oh, thinking is being known, hearing is being known, interrupts the tendency to proliferate around what is being known. But the, an object's being known, and then the mind thinks about the object that was known. But then you would note that, oh, that's just thinking. Thinking's being known. So that's a technique. You don't have to do that. And for some people, it's not that uh, skillful to do it. The labeling process itself agitates the mind. But don't assume that that's the case until you do it enough. It's like learning to ride a bike. The first time you get on the bike, it's agitating. <laughs> Because we don't know what we're doing, you know. So it's the same thing with meditation techniques. The other thing about the open attention practice <clears throat> that really is important, and we all want to, you know, you may spend most of your time over here with a directed mindfulness practice, but everybody should do a little open attention, because that's how we live, like when we're not doing formal meditation, the way we sustain our practice is going to be more like open attention. You're not going to be attending to your breath as you're having a conversation with your partner, or she or he will not be your partner for long. Because you won't really be there. So you have to be able to use what's predominant to sustain being more and more mindful in life. But another thing that really helps is like, we think we're doing open attention practice, but in subtle ways we're still telling the mind what it should be knowing. But actually... The real art to successful open attention practice is to be interested, to be authentically interested in what is predominant. So you need some humility. Like, I don't actually know what is most captivating to the attention, this process of the mind paying attention, until I show up in the moment and actually see what the mind is attending to. It's very hard to just let the mind attend to whatever it's attending to. And to be curious about what it is knowing, what it is doing. For example, like when I heard you speak, and one of the things that I've learned to do slowly, with a lot of missteps, is um, like when there's some quality of confusion or some quality of doubt, to just let that be the object that's being known. This is what's predominant. This is how it is. Right? So not to second guess, like, oh, I must be, I'm, I, 
I should do something because I have doubt or I'm confused. Okay, I'm feeling, right? Right. So feelings are easier to attend to. Yeah, but but sometimes there's just like a. It's not even a feeling. It's more like a quality of the mind, like a coloring in the mind. The mind is just confused, or the mind is just doubtful. So there may not even be a strong, unpleasant feeling associated with it. But it's just, or the mind is, it's not always a negative quality. It could be the mind is bright, or the mind is equanimous, or the mind is buoyant or joyful. But because it's subtle, and because it's sort of a pervasive quality, the mind assumes it's not what's predominant. And it looks for some other object to know, but actually that's what's predominant. The mind is relaxed, it's calm. Oh, calm is being calm is like this. So sometimes when the open attention practice feels challenging, it's the time, instead of giving it up, it's the time to ask, what else is being known? What else is happening in this moment that hasn't, the mind isn't clearly aware that it's knowing? Because some things, the mind, in a sense, is taking it for granted. It's taking the knowing of it, its presence, for granted. So open attention to practice, open attention practice is making it clear what the mind is knowing, what the mind is experiencing, what's really predominant. It's making it clear, oh, this is what's predominant. There's a real, direct, immediate experience of joy every time the knowing mind knows what's predominant. The knowing mind is already knowing what's predominant, but as soon as it knows what's predominant, knows that it's knowing what's predominant, there's a, it's, it's like the mind coming into alignment, and whatever that distortion was when it was out of alignment, it disappears. So that's like samadhi, that's one of the definitions of samadhi, is the way the mind is in the moment isn't disturbing itself. And one of the ways that happens is when the mind knows what's predominant. So there's a mindfulness, there's a reflectiveness that knows that this is what the mind is knowing. This is what the mind is doing. And it's not disturbing what the mind is knowing and doing. It's knowing that that's what the mind is knowing. That's what the mind is doing. And it's leaving it alone. We have to leave it here. It's nine o'clock. Sorry, Mark. Unless it's very quick. Yeah, so next week. <laughs> We're going to come back to this. So this is chapter, for those of you who are reading along, chapters five and six. And uh, Meredith ordered some books for people who left checks uh, from one of our local independent bookstores. And they're on Shelley's desk in the office. You can check them out. There's still eight more to come. So if your name isn't on one of the books, it will be here in a week or so. So let's just take 30 seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath together. To appreciate these wise teachings and all of our spiritual ancestors, all the people from so many different walks of life, complicated lives just like our own who undertook the practice, realized insight, and then out of compassion, shared what they've learned as best they could. And now we're the recipients of this wonderful tradition. 
it's our turn to do the best we can in our lives, as complicated as they may be, cultivating wisdom and compassion, skillfulness, becoming causes for peace and freedom from suffering in our own lives and in the world. So may this be so. And thanks again, everyone, for coming tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.